Hello and welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Chris. And I'm Kyle. And this year we are, um, we ran a poll uh, for this episode and the options led us to 1957, one of the great years of cinema in general, but also a pretty cracking year at the Academy Awards. And we will be looking at the best picture lineup this year, which is a pretty wide range in quality, I would say. Um, but it, <laughs> I think it, it sums up the 50s and the kind of schizophrenic uh, approach that the Academy was taking, drawn on the one hand to its gritty black and white um, uh, dramas, and then with an eye towards the Technicolor epics that were beginning to become kind of the standard uh, we'd had, you know, Around the World in 80 Days was the best picture winner the previous year. And 1956, I believe, was the first year without a black and white nominee. Um, so it was definitely the biggest and kind of most bombastic of the 50s in that regard. But 57 kind of carries that forward, but also um, remembers that there's some, you know, low budget stuff that exists as well, or at least normal budget, I suppose. Um, so were you excited that the poll led us to this, uh, to this year in this category? Yeah, uh, I would have been happy with any of the options, but I think this is a very good lineup. Uh, I'd seen all of these already and I knew that you had as well, uh, because of your blog and I didn't remember Peyton Place too well. So I did specifically want to, to rewatch that, um, to get a firmer grasp on it. Um, and I did revise my opinion a bit on that. But yeah, overall was pleased to revisit these nominees. And I was going to say we may as well uh, choose who we'd vote for in director as well, given that these are, were also the best director nominees. That's right, yeah. The first of uh, only five times in the five nominee era that there's a perfect match between the picture nominees and the director nominees and um, probably probably makes sense for the most part I would say that they, it was just a perfect match um, the nominees this year were 12 Angry Men Peyton Place, Sayonara Witness for the Prosecution and the winner David Lean's The Bridge on the River Kwai so I suppose we start with 12 Angry Men we're going to talk about another trial, um, well, a couple of trials later on. Um, but in this one, they are all men. And I guess, I mean, the film doesn't make too much of a point about the fact that they're all men. But it is interesting. I don't know whether different rules in different states at that time. Because, for instance, the one later in Paint and Place, there are women on the jury. Mm-hmm. I certainly think that it was anachronistic even in 1957 or 1954 when the original play, uh, teleplay was on. Yeah, it it would have been weird, I think, to have an all-male, all-white jury uh, even at the time. But I don't think there's a law against it. There probably isn't a law against it to this day. Um, But yeah, definitely sticks out a bit. I think from today's point of view, seeing just it's like, oh, this is a very diverse panel. 
Yeah. Bunch of bunch of white middle class men uh, in their forties and fifties judging a you know a Puerto Rican teenager. Probably didn't really see them as his peers. But what's interesting and good about the fact that even though these are all men, they've got very different personalities. There's such a wide array of personalities within the twelve men, um, and it yeah. really does represent a spectrum. But I mean, I did jury service a few years ago and I thought it was a really positive experience, to be honest. I was quite heartened by how everyone was taking it seriously, apart from one person. Um, But it did kind of give me faith in the justice system a little bit, um, more than I had before anyway. Um, But there was one guy who just smoked weed in the intervals and... um, Ended up getting the the trial declared a mistrial. Um, so, uh, oh my goodness! Yeah, um, but apart from that, everyone else was was pretty sensible, and um, yeah. But yeah, well, can I can I just say, even though he doesn't smoke any weed on camera, Henry Fonda definitely would have gotten this declared a mistrial in real life, um, <laughs> because nothing juror number eight does is remotely proper. Um, at best, he would have gotten bounced and replaced with an alternate, uh, and at worst, this entire trial would have had to been done been done over. Um, I think as soon as they go back in the courtroom and say, "Spoiler alert, not guilty," um, the judge would probably ask some questions. I think uh, because it's if if you're not privy to what they talk about, it's kind of difficult to believe them going in and coming out an hour and a half later with a not guilty verdict. Yeah, I mean, nobody would go on such a crusade like this, right? I ha- I have to think no, but actually, um, there is... This film and this play has had a tangible effect on people on juries, especially in the US. There are people who get on juries and see themselves as, you know, Henry Fonda, and they're going to prevent a horrible miscarriage of justice through their actions. And it's just, it's a huge headache for judges and lawyers because people go on juries expecting it to be like 12 Angry Men, where it's like up to them to determine, you know, the merits of the evidence and the merits of the witnesses. And to an extent it is, but you're not allowed as a juror, at least in the U.S., you're not allowed to make arguments like a lawyer, you're not allowed to introduce evidence. You're not allowed to do any of that. I mean, he basically and, is the defense attorney, isn't he? Pretty much Henry yeah. Fonda's character. Yeah. And the knife. How did he get the knife in there? <laughs> I know there were metal detectors in 1957, right? <laughs> and you know that that part has bothered me too because it basically makes him a liar. Because at the beginning of the deliberations, he's all like, oh, I'm just not sure, you know, I think we should talk. He may be guilty, blah, blah, blah. And then he just has that knife in his pocket the whole time. He's ready to take it out and slam it into the table at a dramatic moment. It's like, dude, you knew. You know what you're getting into here. <laughs> don't act like, oh, I don't know. I just want to talk. No, he's he's got his Perry Mason moment ready to go, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but no nomination for Henry Fonda. No, very surprising. Um, I mean, he he does a great job. I mean, his character's horrible, like a terrible juror, but he, Henry Fonda, plays him very, very well. 
Um, so yeah, very kind of surprising uh, that he doesn't he didn't get a best actor nomination here. I think for me, the ensemble are good. There's a couple of overcooked performances, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, Joseph Sweeney was a standout, um, mm-hmm. and also A.G. Marshall. In general, I think the quieter performances are a bit more interesting than the Lee J. Cobb and Ed Begley's sort of grandstanding. Um, I think Begley's good as a villain because he just he just has a a face that you just want to punch, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of good casting to have him as the racist, but I enjoyed the quieter performances more. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, Lee J. Cobb, and it kind of kills me to say this because I like him so much, but he's kind of the weakest for me. He's just a little... He goes from zero to 60 way too fast. Um, and he, it kind of wish that he had played it as kind of more of a slow burn because he starts very uh, reasonable. I just want to talk facts. And then within like 20 minutes, he's shouting and yelling. So he kind of tips his hand a little early. And it would have been nice to see that more simmering, I think. Um, but yeah, I agree that the quieter performances are better. I also like Robert Weber as Porger, number 12. Just no idea what's going on and does not <laughs> want to be there at all. And just going with the current back and forth poor guy i mean i think one thing that the film does well is by having this um heat wave as the Mm -hmm. backdrop and and everyone's sweating because when people are hot and bothered they are more irritable yep the film is shown a lot in in schools and from an educational standpoint, it does reiterate important points about the justice system, that people are innocent until proven guilty and the the notion of reasonable doubt. I think the first time that I watched it, I wondered whether we should have seen more of the trial before they actually get to the deliberation, because you only have a little bit um, mm-hmm. that ends with a close-up of the young, the young guy. Um, but I think the script does yep. such a good job of painting a picture of what the trial was like anyway, that, that it doesn't really matter. You know, they're talking about a woman testifying and the imprints of her eyeglasses. And the way that they go into details like that, we may as well have seen her anyway, because the discussion feels like it's being recounted. It doesn't feel too scripty. Yeah, I agree. The script does a good job of making it... Um making the recounts of the trial not too exposition-y. Uh, it does really just sound like a conversation that people who knew the details would have um, while still letting us in on it uh, as the audience. Of course, yeah, the, the kind of a iffy point to turn the whole case around is, boy, women... <laughs> Wearing the glass, not wearing glasses because they're so vain, right? We should probably just ignore her testimony, <laughs> right, guys? Yeah. And they go back in and the judge is like, yeah, I thought of that too. <laughs> Women. It's ridiculous. So maybe there, maybe if one woman had been on the jury and just be like, um, guys, is this really the best legal argument we can come up with to just disregard an eyewitness testimony? <laughs> And also this thing with the leg, getting the guy to drag his, uh, 
drag his leg around and uh, yeah. count the amount of seconds. Apparently, it's only 31 seconds in the film, <laughs> which is kind of a bit, uh, maybe a bit of a goof there. But yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I mostly suspended my disbelief when I watched this this film, and it, I do think it's important um, that the message uh, "innocent until proven guilty." There's a good chance that this kid could have killed his dad, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. But I think it's, I'm kind of more predisposed to not guilty. Whenever I get into something like that, I always try and see the best in people. But this film does a good job of showing you that some people don't at all, you know? Yeah, I think that's that's why we can kind of, I mean, yes, we can nitpick the legal um uh, slip-ups in the film and i i have more that but this isn't what the podcast about so i'm kind of sitting on a lot of it um but (laughs) obviously that's not the main point of the film right it's what we were talking about how people communicate how some people see the good and some people see the bad and how do we persuade people and how do we how do we look at things like evidence and guilt and reasonable doubt so I think in all those respects, it's a very successful film. Um, but I will just say that it could be shown as a training video for lawyers to show them how not to conduct a trial, because clearly these lawyers left way too much up in the air. Like, the defense attorney should have addressed all of these points, right? That, you know, what about, do you wear, he could have asked the witness, do you wear glasses? Sometimes I wear, you know, prescription. Is it long distance, short distance? That's something the lawyers need to get in so that the jury doesn't have to speculate. So I think they could show this in law school and be like, see, right there. You don't want the jury speculating on that shit. Ask the witness. Yeah. as I've seen a lot of documentaries where especially people of color are just given the, the local lawyer and they just don't care. And they sort of written them off before they've begun. Um, yeah. And they do address that in the film, right? That he got a court-appointed attorney who wasn't really doing his job. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, but seriously, um, if if Lee J. Cobb really wanted to get juror number eight off his back, he, he should have called the bailiff as soon as that knife came out um, and just said, hey... I feel threatened, or at the very least, um, this juror is conducting an in- conducted an investigation into the case, which is absolutely not allowed. And he is arguing. I like. I think I. I don't remember because I, I reviewed this in my blog a few years ago now. But I think I remember writing that my theory is that Henry Fonda's character wanted to be a lawyer when he was younger and you know, didn't get a chance to. He's an architect now, and maybe he's always been bitter about that. Maybe that's why Henry Fonda didn't get nominated, because maybe Mm. some people saw this as a bit of a busybody, um, troublemaking kind of character. You know, not everyone in in Ampass in 1957 were uh, the most progressive of people, and, uh, you know, this is just when the McCarthy trials have been on recently before this right so mm-hmm. and all the the blacklisting going on in hollywood so it might not have been a completely progressive bunch of people voting on this that's true although i will say just 
you know, I don't want people to think that I'm that I think eyewitnesses are infallible. Uh, they're absolutely not. And there's nothing wrong with nitpicking eyewitness testimony because quite often it is wrong. But to just completely throw it away on such flimsy excuses is probably not it's probably going too far the other direction. That's that's all I'm going to say. And they definitely didn't. Um, and, and then the, the best point, I'm sorry, I'm gonna, this is going too long, but the best legal point was actually brought up by juror number 11 when he was, you know, wondering about how the kid left the knife and then came back. F- you know, the theory was that he came back for it. Um, so the uh, then E.G. Marshall said he left in a state of panic and then came back, and then the juror, and then juror eleven said, "Ah, but he wiped it clean of fingerprints, so he wasn't panicking." And then suddenly he was. That I wanted to see that line of questioning because, like, that could have turned E.G. Marshall much earlier. That's a great point, and so I think I think he was the best at you know legal cross examination. Um, again, not his job as the juror, but still. A good, a very good point. Very observant. Should we get on to paint and place? <laughs> yeah, I guess we, I guess we must. Um, I really hate this movie. I I think it could have been, like, it, it takes itself way too seriously for me. I mean, it, it could be an over-the-top, funny, soap opery thing, but it's just so, so rigidly dramatic like there's no room for comedy even dark comedy in any of this um so just it's it's kind of a slog for me and there is some unintentional comedy like um... unintentional yes very unintentional and it's hilarious in that regard but the the film could have been a little more cognizant of how ridiculous it was and i think that could have played to it well it was based on a bestseller Right from um, Grace mm-hmm. Metallius, who was this housewife um, with three kids, and um, I mean, you've got everything in this story: there's incest, rape, murder, suicide, illegitimate children, mm-hmm. alcoholism, adultery, and they left some things out <laughs> from the book. Yeah, they they left a cat strangulation out from the book. Um, I I kind of did find it very entertaining this time around watching it. It's got obvious problems. The filmmaking is not the best from Mark Robson. Um, but I I'd be lying if I said I wasn't entertained. Um, and it does have some good performances. It also has some bad ones, but it has some good. Yeah, I mean, overall, I think it's I guess it's competently made. And the cast overall does okay with the material. But I think another thing is that it's it's almost three hours long. And there's no need for it to be that long. Uh, I think it could have trimmed away quite a lot. The pacing is just way too lugubrious for me. Um, and sometimes I just really wanted to just get on with it. Um, there's too much too many scenes of just kind of long exposition and too much of uh too many things that just kind of come up and don't lead anywhere um that it just seems kind of unfocused overall i'm not not really sure i mean they left so much out of the book 
um, which I think the author really hated. Um, but in leaving that out, it kind of just makes it seem like kind of a greatest hits of the town's horrible secrets rather than telling any kind of coherent story. I think it does have a valid social commentary about the about an era in America where kids are gaining a voice and and uh, teenagers with sexual desire and and having to deal with an out of touch generation um, of parents that that sort of True. did themselves all the puritanical moral panic going on and um, they're kind of suffocating their kids. Mm-hmm. But this is the only point um, in the movie. And I agree, it has no business being that long. It could easily have been under two hours. Um, I I want to say that I liked Diane Varsi. I think she's quite splendid, actually, as Alison. Um, because I think that that character could be really brattishly played based on the mm-hmm. script, but I think she kind of ends up feeling a bit of a, you know, bit of a free spirit, a bit of a Joe from Little Women kind of character, um, where she doesn't need to settle down and she's she's longing to be in the big city. And I think as someone from a small town, I sort of understood her restlessness in that character and the contempt that she ends up having for the for the people of Peyton Place and all the politics going going round. But there's also some bad I mean, Arthur Kennedy is terrible in this film. I can't believe he was nominated. He's shocking. Yeah. It's a very yeah, just kind of a broad, um I'm always drunk kind of performance. And yeah, can't it's definitely not worth an Oscar nomination. And three of his Oscar nominations were for Mark Robson films, right? Mm-hmm. Trial and Champion. Yep. But yeah, uh, not his finest moment. What did you think of Lana Turner? Very rigid um, and very joyless. Um, I won't... Like, she. she never really gets a good... Um, I don't know her 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 character's ending isn't really that great. Um, it just kind of putters across the finish line with the promise of maybe a reconciliation and maybe a good marriage. Um, but it seems like they kind of her her story kind of ends with the trial, and then the camera keeps on her, um, and uh, her daughter turns. And they, she and Allison turn the trial into an excuse to talk to each other cryptically while on the witness stand, which, again, um, <laughs> I can't believe the prosecuting attorney, because he was such a monster, but he let that slide. Um, not great. But anyway, um, Lana Turner, in general, I think, does a pretty good job. Um, I don't think she, I'd have given her the Oscar this year, but I guess her nomination is not that surprising, given the overall success of the film. Well, yeah, she's the only Best Actress nominee in a Best Picture nominee. Um, That's right. Which is interesting. So maybe she was she had a chance of winning this. But uh, for me, she doesn't do enough to earn a nomination. Never mind a win. I, I think she's fine, but it's all very one note. Um, yeah. There wasn't much dimension to the character. 
And I'm not even sure she's the lead. I mean, she's she's got 43 minutes of screen time in a two and a half hour movie. And Diane Varsi's got 55. So for me, yeah. the central character, the resonant character was Alison. So I would have said that Diane Varsi was the lead. But obviously star power, Lana Turner, huge, famous star. Um, yeah. And of course, um, Diane Varsi, not even 20 at the time. So at the time in the 50s, I don't think too many teenagers would have been nominated for Best Actress or Best best Lead Performance. But I agree. It's clearly Allison's movie. She's the narrator. She's in most of it. Yeah. I want to talk about the slapping. There's a couple of slaps in this movie. Um, mm. And it's just so funny. It's so silly. There's this bit where Alison and Constance are talking and Alison says something about wanting to be a man's mistress. And then the dramatic music comes up and Lana Turner just <laughs> whacks her on the face. It's, it's so trashy, this movie. Really trashy. It is. Um, yeah. And that, that was kind of... I kind of thought, yeah, it's it's not going for the comedy. <laughs> it's not even dark, is it? That was just unintentionally funny, but... I kind of was entertained by it. I think that's what I was trying to say earlier, where it wasn't a chore to watch the film, even though it was two hours 37. I was just going to say, the slap is way just, slap is just straight up soap opera. I mean, yeah, the rousing music and the way Diane Farsi just kind of rebounds her face, like she gets slapped and then looks at her again. It's just, yeah, straight up soap opera. And I was just watching um, Schitt's Creek, that does a great job of kind of parodying that the slap and then the looking back into the character's eyes it's ridiculous um yeah yeah because it's it seems like there was this i mean there's i've seen a lot of movies like this there were a lot in the in the 30s where you have to end your film with a trial (laughs) and a hysterical courtroom climax which we we've also got another hysterical courtroom climax later on um, it was all a rage in 1957, I think. <laughs> it really was, yeah. And again, um, some parts of the trial that don't come off as true, such as the fact that, yeah, mother and daughter used their time on the witness stand to send not-so-cryptic messages to each other. Um, the fact that uh, poor Selena has the worst defense attorney in the world. Like, what is he doing? He, first of all, why would he put her on the stand? There's no reason to put her on the stand and put her under the gaze of this impossibly, impossibly um, harsh district attorney. Like, what is this guy's problem? Yeah. He is way too committed to breaking these witnesses and breaking this teenage girl on the stand. Um I really don't think he needed to go that far. But doesn't he say, oh, how hard did he, how hard did he hit her? What does it yeah. matter he hits her? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like, well, I'm just trying to, you know, first it was beating her, then it's just a slap. I mean, <laughs> may as well have just kissed her on the cheek, right? <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, this is the 50s, obviously. Um, obviously, the film takes a very different approach to incestuous rape than we might see in a film made today. Um, so I guess we have to allow for a little bit of, you know, cringeworthy datedness. 
Um, but yeah, the, her defense attorney doesn't do a very good job. And also, again, a legal point, you can't just introduce evidence on the witness stand in a surprise way. You have to introduce it to the judge and bring it out through, bring out the importance of the evidence through the witness. You can't just have the witness say, and I have here a piece of paper that proves everything. Um, it's just, I hate when I see that because it's such a lazy screenwriting device to just move the plot forward. If you, I, my feeling is that if you don't want to do the legwork of portraying the trial realistically, just don't bother. You know, think of another way to end your movie. Um, if we ever get to 1959, we can talk about Anatomy of a Murder, which actually does do a really good job of showing how a trial yes. would actually go. Um, but this this year kind of drops the ball in terms of legal realism, which obviously was p- of paramount importance uh, <laughs> for these filmmakers. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was on board with the miscarriage and all that, but I... I think the murder was just a step too far and it just seemed like at that point it was just trying to pile trauma upon trauma onto these people, which seems like it's probably the same case with the book um, to to a further extent even. But yeah, for me it was overkill and uh, yeah, I, I thought the ending was weak, but they had to reconcile Alison and Constance's relationship and it was an excuse for her to come back to town how could we get mm-hmm. her back to town it's got you know it's got to be the most severe thing possible <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I yeah I, I'm afraid I did not revise my opinion uh from when I watched it the first time I I think I would have enjoyed this movie more if somebody if it had been made with a little more self-awareness um like maybe if it had been made a couple decades later as a parody of a fifties melodrama, um, but as it stands, it didn't just didn't land for me. Did Sayonara land for you? Um, I have to say, more than Peyton Place. Like I don't love this film. Um, it's again like Peyton Place. It's too long. Most of the stuff that could be cut was the stuff that's common in a lot of 50s movies set in uh, international locations where it just plays like a travelogue for a lot of it, where the, and especially when um, Major, when Marlon Brando's uh, character, Major Groover, shows up and get, you know, he begins dating this Japanese woman, Hanaogi, and then she basically just takes him on a tour and explains to him Japanese uh, rituals and Japanese traditions and it's like, are we, we're watching a travelogue documentary now, and here is Kabuki, and here's how it's different from other theaters, and here's the cherry blossom, and here's what that means, and here's what this means, and here's this temple, and blah, blah, blah. It's interesting, but it doesn't really move the plot forward. No, the, the film was, on the whole, very, very slow and laborious, I thought, mm-hmm. uh, ponderous. There's no reason uh, it should be this long again. Common theme this week. Um, but we have to, we have to address the elephant in the room. What on earth is going on with Marlon Brando's accent in this movie? (laughs) I, it started, I'd somehow not remembered this from the first time I saw it. And then I'm, and then as soon as a line of dialogue comes out of his mouth, his character Lloyd, it's almost like Truman Capote meets... 
one of the Looney Tunes. I, <laughs> it's like the southern draw, but the intonation that he brings to it makes Lloyd see extremely dim. Um, yeah. Which I'm kind of on board with. If that's if that was the intention, it's conceivable that he is dim because you know the character's written as somebody quite fickle and a bit like a kid in a sweet shop at times. It, doesn't think things through. Um, mm-hmm. So if that was the intention, fine. But overall, I found the accent quite distracting. Yeah. Um, and who knows what was going on in Brando's head. He, was, um, he wasn't he was quite in the peak of his prima donna days, but he was getting there. Like, he was at the point in his career where he could do whatever he wanted. Um, so if he wanted to do an accent, then the director would just have to deal with it. I mean, he did it a few years after this on Mutiny on the Bounty, um, and just refused to say his lines until Lewis Milestone let him do the accent. So who knows if he took it that far with, with this, but yeah, his Southern accent is just so distracting because it doesn't seem like he's going for anything in particular, like a particular state or a particular region or even a particular, like, social class. He's just kind of doing a southern accent, like you said, a mix of Looney Tunes and just what he's heard uh, in the course of his life. And it doesn't, I don't think it fits the character. I mean, maybe you're right that it kind of makes him a little less, um, I don't know, a little dimmer. But if that's the case, then it's kind of a mean reason to do an accent, uh, to suggest something about a character's intelligence. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think he thought it through more than, uh, I just think this is good. And I doubt that he gave Logan or anybody else more of an explanation than that. Um, but while we're on the subject of accents, uh, you also have um, Ricardo Montalban, a... <laughs> Mexican actor uh, born to Spanish parents playing a Japanese character and his Japanese accent just involves switching his R's and his L's which is the most stereotypical approach to a Japanese accent uh, that one can get and so I think um, Brando does not have the worst accent in the movie Um, that would have to go to Montalban although it's not his fault why was he cast in this role in the first place I didn't know whether he was supposed to be Japanese until until Eileen says to her parents, I only want to speak to one man now and he's Japanese. And I thought, he was supposed to be Japanese, really? I thought he was like a European who made his way over to Japan. I don't know. Um, I think you can be forgiven for thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, I mean, I think the film's okay. Um my problem is it only really gives us a snapshot of the issue that it's discussing. I can't really gauge from this movie what people actually thought about interracial marriage in 1957 beyond the army. It's it's only dealing right. with this particular context for interracial marriage, which is that all these lonely American soldiers are, are marrying the local women of Japan. Um so for me, it lacks overall perspective on the issue. It's all, it's all about this one situation. Um, yeah. So I don't think it has much to say, really. I agree. Although one of the things that I did like about it was that um, 
it part when it does address the institutional racism and prejudice in the army it doesn't try to sugarcoat it like it doesn't try to paint the officers who are like really coming down hard on ace and joe um it doesn't try to show them as like outsiders or racists or like more racist than anybody else it shows them as enforcing army policy as written um which i think is pretty bold of the film to say no this is this institutional racism is baked into the army regulations and it is horrible but it is ex- these people are just doing the job as required by the regulations um which is pretty bold to do i think in 1957 so i have to give the film credit for that yeah i think um kelly and is it katsumi yeah, I liked their relationship. I like Red Red Button's performance. I think is is good. Umeki's um, win is a huge stretch for me, but I th- I thought Buttons was mm-hmm. lovely, and I really liked that relationship. I don't like how it ends, and I feel like the double suicide is manipulative um, in the moment and. Then what compounded it was when they said that the law's going to be passed. And I just rolled my eyes, to be honest. I just thought that's, I mean, come on. You needed to do that as well, um, to reiterate that, just to hammer that home. Um, so for me, that was disappointing. Um, but I did generally like the performances. I think Patricia Owens is very good as Eileen. Um what did you think about Lloyd's relationship with Hannah Ogie then? Did it did it make sense to you? I think that overall, yes. I think it progressed pretty well. Um, I think she dove into it with both feet pretty readily and pretty early. Like the first time they speak to each other, she's just like, I'm going to love you forever if that's what you want. And he's, I loved Brando in that scene because he's just looking at her like... Um, you know this is the first time we've ever spoken, right? You you really don't have to commit that hard just yet. Um, but other than that, like if, if you take that scene out of it, then I feel like their courtship kind of is kind of nice to watch and they do seem to genuinely enjoy each other's company. So I did, I, I liked their relationship, yeah. I like the fact that she, you know, she sort of sacks him off and then you know, says she's got to stay with the uh, the troop and then, you know, she dumps him and that, that resolved quite nicely towards the end. I liked that. I agree with you that she dives in too quickly. It's like one scene she's telling Katsumi that she doesn't speak to Americans because um, her parents were killed, right? And um, yeah. Yeah. And then suddenly she's saying that She's asking Lloyd to forgive her for being prejudiced. And I'm thinking <laughs> she's being cautious about, you know, this American military man because th- they've dropped a nuclear bomb on Japan and killed her parents. So I think it's kind of a warranted complaint on her part, honestly. Um, but it has her forgive, ask forgiveness from him. So I, th- I thought that the film was maybe trying to say that the Japanese can be just as prejudiced about people, which can be true, but seems like a bit of an inappropriate decision given what 
the film's about, you know? Yeah, that, those parts where they were trying to hammer that home, like, ooh, there's prejudice on both sides. I, those parts seemed kind of ham-fisted and tone-deaf uh, to me. But, yeah, they, they did not work at all. I agree. Um, losing your parents to an atomic bomb attack, uh, I think, is a legitimate reason to harbor some ill will towards the country that did it, especially towards a member of the military of that country. <laughs> exactly. What about Joshua Logan? Mm, I don't think much of him as a director, um, honestly. Uh, maybe I haven't seen enough of his stuff, but like Picnic, I'm not crazy about. Uh, Fanny, I wish didn't exist. Um, Camelot doesn't have great reviews. I haven't seen it. Um, but Oh, it's awful. Yeah, that's what I hear. Um, and... I've only seen Paint Your Wagon as a Simpsons parody, and I doubt that it's as entertaining as that, so probably won't watch it. Um, but yeah, Josh Logan, as a director, not crazy about him. I liked Fanny, actually. Um, mm. I've heard good things about Paint Your Wagon as well, but the others, yeah, not a fan. And he doesn't bring much to this. The film looks good because they spent a lot of money on it, yeah. and it's got this very milky cinematography going on. But it's, yeah, all of those travelogue aspects just drag, really do drag. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt like it was a bit flat overall. Although I have to say we dodged a um, Love is a Many Splendored Thing bullet because the original choice to play Hannah Ogie was Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. And that if if there's any actress who was whiter than Jennifer Jones it was Audrey Hepburn that would have been a bad decision yeah luckily they they rethought that maybe there was some mm-hmm. um rumblings from love is a many splendid thing maybe the the dust hadn't quite settled on that decision <laughs> um but it's it got uh, four oscars in the end sayonara um, yeah. The two, the two supporting act, uh, actor and actress, and then sound recording and art direction. So, not bad actually. Uh, one of only two films the year to win multiple Oscars, and we'll get to the other one in due course. Yeah. But first, um, witness for the prosecution. So we move back to the courtroom um, for another cracking black and white legal drama. Now, we're in a bit of a bind here, aren't we? Um, because the management of the theater has expressly asked us not to reveal the ending. Yeah. Um, although that was 1957. <laughs> yeah, but who knows if they're still, you know, looking, you know, monitoring that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Agatha Christie's legacy lives on. Um, yeah. She's got police everywhere. <laughs> It's true. Well, we'll get to it, and we'll we'll have to decide decide in the moment. <laughs> well, nobody could nobody could write a Who Done It like Agatha Christie and have the ending be such a surprise, honestly. But I kind of I think you could see it coming a little bit with this one. Um, oh yeah, I do think there are some missteps plot wise. Um, just for one thing. The um, 
the hag, the so-called hag um, scene where the hag gives them the letters. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of thought, well, she says that her, her fella's gone off with Christine. I mean, could you imagine a man who's managed to snag someone that looks like Marlena Dietrich ever having gone with that woman? <laughs> I just couldn't. I That put me out of it straight away. I didn't remember that it was actually Marlena Dietrich um, putting on an act. I, I didn't remember that, but it, it crossed my mind that this, this is iffy. This is not right here. Yeah, and... I, I didn't notice it the first time I watched uh, the movie because they do do a pretty good job of like giving her makeup and whatnot. But the second time watching, I'm like, oh yeah, this is the most German accented Cockney I've ever heard. <laughs> like she, it her accent game was not flawless. And um, Sir Wilfred, I think could have picked up on that if this was real life. Um, so you're Cockney by way of Berlin? Is that, I mean, but yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely to your point, um, that it does require some serious suspension of disbelief. Yeah. The fake story. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I like Marlena Dietrich a lot in this. Um, she gives, aside from her kind of melodramatic explosion on the witness stand um, when he, you know, quote-unquote gets her with the letters. Um, You know, damn you! Like four times or something. Which I guess plays into what she was trying to do, what her character was trying to do, but at the same time it was a bit over the top. Um, But other than that, I think she is a... I think she's great in this. Um, And Tyrone Power as well, I really liked uh, in it. Yeah, I think everyone's great, to be honest. Everyone in it. But um, whenever Dietrich's on the screen, I couldn't stop looking at her. I, she's just got this, such magnetism. She was such a a proper movie star. Um, and you kind of don't know what to make of her. Like in the scene where she first meets Sir Wilfred, and he doesn't know what to make of her. And then it kind of becomes, she kind of becomes the villain, but... There's always something lurking beneath there. The thing with Agatha Christie is there were no other suspects, so it had to be either him or her. You know what I mean? It had to be either Christine or Leonard that had done it. So there there weren't many options, but I think Dietrich's wonderful, and I think she was expecting a nomination for this, right? I have to imagine, yeah. And I think that part of the reason she didn't get nominated was that maybe people didn't realize that she was playing the two roles and in the in the studio's kind of zealousness to keep the ending a surprise they really didn't highlight that she had this dual role so i think maybe some academy members just didn't notice that part of her performance uh not that she didn't deserve it anyway but I think that probably would have put her over the top easily if more people had been aware of, of the two roles that she played. I find it baffling because even even yeah. without that other role, the film got six nominations. Mm-hmm. The Best Actress lineup is not very good in 1957. But uh, yeah, it, that's a strange one. I um, 
I thought Charles Lawton fully deserved his nomination. Mm-hmm. He's nobody could play a curmudgeon quite like Charles Lawton. He really mm-hmm. sells it very, very well. Um, everything at the beginning with he and Elsa Lanchester is fantastic. <laughs> On the chairlift, uh, the stairlift, um, he's treating it's a thrill ride. He's sneaking cigars from his barrister friend. It's kind of like you just can't deny him. You just can't deny the character because he's having so much fun and he's he's living life to the full. So I think Sir Wilfred, you know, it's endears us to him straight away. You know, it, it's a great opening to the movie and it really uh, starts it on a good note. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like the whole plot is set in motion by his desire for a cigar, right? He's he's heading up to take a nap and then he sees the cigars in his friend's pocket and all of a sudden he's like, no, I'll take the case. And if he hadn't been a cigar smoker, he never would have, we wouldn't have a movie at all. <laughs> uh, how did you think it was paced? Was it paced well? I think so. Yeah, I think it was paced quite well. Um, the I'm not sure that I needed the flashbacks at the beginning. No, no. Um, I did like the flashback to um, to Leonard and Christine meeting. I kind of liked that. But the the flashbacks to uh, Leonard and the murdered woman, I think, were completely unnecessary. I would have done away with all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what what struck me when, when the flashbacks were on is that, I mean, I wondered if maybe Billy Wilder was a bit concerned Um with this being a play that it, it wasn't going to be cinematic enough. Um, yeah. And, and maybe he wanted to take us out of the, the courtroom and out of Sir Wilfred's house, which is pretty much the only two settings. Yeah. Um, but to be honest, I was so hooked by the script, I didn't feel like it was a play anyway. So I I, I don't think it needs any of them. Um, no. And, and they don't affect our view of the mystery at all, I don't think. Yeah. I I think I agree that's probably the best explanation for it. Um, of course, Billy Wilder could have just talked to Sidney Lumet, who would have told him, nah, screw it, keep him. You just need one location. What do you need to go outside for? <laughs> but I think I looked at the, the clock when the trial started. It was 50 minutes in to the two-hour film, and I, I thought, yeah, that's about right. This is This is really paced very, very well which is yeah. not always the case with Billy Wilder's films. I think many of them go on for far too long, but this one was quite tight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the final twist twists even all occur like in the last five minutes, so he really packs in a a very one-two punch on the finale and then we're out. So the I love the pace of the ending um, and the the wrap-up is perfect. And we have that nice little... Nice little joke at the end where um, Elsa Lanchester finally lets him have brandy and cigars and and live his life, and they go off together. Um, They're very cute together, and I think it's, you know, obviously Charles Lawton and Lanchester were married in real life, and I think they they make a very cute on-screen couple. Yeah. Were they already married when they were in Private Life of Henry VIII together, or did they get married after that? I think just married recent uh, early thirties mm. they got married so okay yeah because they're very cute um, in that one as well yeah yeah I think 
with the ending, it, it is very melodramatic. Um, but I kind of liked it. I like the poetic justice, if you will, of the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how exactly Sir Wilfred is planning to defend Christine, <laughs> given that he's a an eyewitness. Um, mm-hmm. I can't see how that possibly could could work. Well, I guess you'll argue temporary insanity or justifiable homicide or something like that. Yeah, legally speaking, homicide is just killing someone. So justifiable homicide would be you can give a, a legally justifiable excuse. I'm not sure getting spurned for another woman would warrant a justifiable homicide uh, defense, but maybe he could swing temporary insanity. Although he would then have to bring out the fact that she lied to get him off the hook for murder and he and he was a patsy in that plot. Um, so she's an accessory. Yeah. If Yeah, mm. she is kind of an accessory. Um, so that will all come out. It probably will be a bit of an embarrassing trial for him, but if he's that committed to giving her a defense, then I guess he doesn't mind. <laughs> Um, and this also was Dietrich's last courtroom appearance on film. She was in Judgment at Nuremberg mm-hmm. in 61, which she's also great in and could easily have been nominated for that too. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame she didn't get uh, more nominations. I wanted to shout out Una O'Connor, who's the only cast member who was in the original stage run. She's hilarious as Janet, the the housekeeper, the scene where she's in the witness box is such a treat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's so vindictive and so, you know, so angry. She plays it really well. Um, I, you know, that, and I wonder kind of like, was she, was she part of the plot? Like, was she in on it? Or was, did she really just hate Leonard that much? That she wanted him to fry? Well, she says she he was there when the will was changed. So yeah. I guess she's not in on it. But mm-hmm. She's just telling the truth, but nobody believes her. <laughs> it's like that woman in 12 Angry Men who wears glasses. So she got a hearing aid. <laughs> That's all it takes. <laughs> um, but she'll probably be called back as a witness for Christina's trial. Now they'll be like, okay, I guess we'll we'll take you seriously now. Um, and I, I also wanted to say that these two, these films, watching these films all one together really highlights the difference, at least in the representation of English court of law versus American court of law. It really makes American courts and American trials look much more confrontational and shouty and personal, whereas it, it makes English trials seem like a pleasant affair. Like even murder trials, everybody's very like, my learned friend and my colleague and your honor. And everybody's so cordial and the lawyers are best friends, even though they're adversaries. And the judge is like your a lovable uncle who just kind of helps you along. It's yeah, it's quite a difference. I, I don't, yeah. It is, is it? true, yeah. that's That was my experience. The judge was like giving one-liners and a typical, <laughs> you know, old-fashioned judge and everybody being nice to each other. <laughs> it was very strange, yeah. It's quite... But is, is American, American courts as shouty as they seem? Well, like like I said, in my, in my experience as 
Like, I've never gotten past the just sitting in the courtroom watching the jury members get selected, but uh, both the times I was there, once in my home state of Michigan and then once in New York, yeah, the judge was kind of wisecracky, and the lawyers were just kind of quietly, competently doing their job. There were no outbursts and no kind of no drama whatsoever. Um, do do the barristers in England still wear the the like powdered wigs, or is that a thing of the past? Absolutely, they do. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Um, so I guess we're going on to the bridge on the river Kwai. I think last in the last episode I said the bridge over the river Kwai. It's kind of confusing. Either would mm. work, right? <laughs> I would think yes, yes. Um, but this won seven Oscars and it was shot on location in Sri Lanka, and unsurprisingly, it just looks stunning, right? Yes. Um, it's an absolutely gorgeous film. Um, cinematography by Jack Hildyard, who uh, was a frequent lean collaborator. Uh, I think his first feature film was Olivier's Henry V, which also has very gorgeous cinematography. Um, and justifiably won himself an Oscar for this film. Uh, it's a incredible looking film. Yeah, every every shot is gorgeous. Yeah, I think Lean then moved on to work with Freddie Young, didn't he, after this, mm-hmm. uh, for the rest of his movies. But yeah, I think what always gets me about this is you think this movie's going to be a bit, you know, kind of like Stalag 17? Um, mm-hmm. where it's about the the prisoners of war enduring toil and then trying to escape, maybe escaping in the end, maybe not. But with this, for maybe an hour, it feels like that might be where it's going. But then as soon as the truce is reached, and you can see Alec Guinness as Colonel Nicholson beginning to take pride in a bridge that he's building for the opposition um mm-hmm. you get the sense that there's a bit more going on here um because this is a war movie but it's one with a major character study at the center of it it's not as formulaic as other war movies tend to be yeah and that's what i liked about it and that's what kind of impressed me about it was um it sets itself up and then it defies your expectations of what you're going to see um and yeah, the kind of transformation of Nichols or Nicholson rather into the villain of the piece is quite well done and very subtle. Um, and the the fact that he himself never sees himself as the villain is all the more um, interesting to the to his character and to the story. Um, but just the I I had forgotten the just the looks of absolute bewilderment bewilderment on um unlike uh William Holden and um and the other characters who are watching him at the end when he's when he's walking with Saito they're just looking what is going on they are so baffled and it's so amazing because like ah they haven't seen what we've seen of this character we knew all along he was a madman but it's new to you yeah, it just goes to show how somebody's um, somebody's own self-importance and uh, you know sense of authority can 
completely cloud uh, their judgment and and turn them into well effectively he was, <laughs> he was just treating them as friends even though he uh, his men had to work through meal times even at his suggestion building this bridge and but that really does then make the ending all the more um, of a of a great payoff when they actually do manage to to achieve that and that it's him that does it inadvertently. Um, but I think Alec Guinness, just a wonderful actor, um, but really in the zone in the late 50s, early 60s. He, um, the Horse's Mouth, which he, he did the year after this, he's so brilliant in that. Um, Tunes of Glory as well in 1960. But here, I, I just love the self-righteous streak to the character. I think it's um, it's a bit of a masterclass from him. Like, it's one of those roles where you don't notice how bad, how horrible the character is because at first you're kind of on his side, right? Because of those expectations of seeing, you know, stiff upper lip prisoners standing up to the horrible conditions. So you're kind of primed for him to be the hero and then the more he kind of um, kind of falls by the wayside and forgets his position and what he should be doing. Um, you kind of don't notice it at first because of his performance is so good. And he comes across initially as very sympathetic. Yeah. It's, it's almost built at the beginning to be um, Nicholson versus Saito, isn't it? With the sort of dueling kernels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm kind of surprised that Sesu Hayakawa doesn't have an Oscar. Honestly, because the film did win, it was nominated for eight Oscars, and the only one it lost was supporting actor. And I'm not saying that because I think Hayakawa is brilliant. I think he's good, but it, it's very much the kind of role that gets somebody an Oscar. You know, it's very, it's very Beatty role. Um, whereas there is elements of bait to um, to Kelly in, in Sayonara, um, but it's not quite the role is not quite as prestigious, um, if you will. And it would have been interesting to have Hayakawa um, win alongside Umeki um, and have both supporting prizes go to East Asian actors, which I think there's only been Hang Essen Gore and Yoon Yoo Jung, right, recently. And that's it, which is pretty appalling. Um, but it would have been interesting to have them be like his and hers Oscars kind of thing. Uh, representing East Asia. But I do love Hayakawa in the scene where Nicholson is telling him uh, they're building the bridge in the wrong place and it's all wrong and it's the beginning of of Nicholson assuming control um, and the egomania is um, is taking over. But um, Hayakawa's reactions are priceless in that scene. Yeah. And I mean, at that point, he's been defeated um and he knows it uh and so at, at this point that he's never going to be happy again even if he even if the bridge had stood and he hadn't been murdered um yeah his his character is done being happy about anything i think at that point yeah we talked about um the difference between english and american courtrooms what about the difference between 
military approaches in this movie. <laughs> Very, yes, quite a contrast. Um, and I think this was typical of a lot of World War II movies of the time, which is that the British were kind of portrayed as um, having a bit of a stick up their ass about the rules and the regulations and being proper and Americans were just much more insubordinate and much more just kind of pragmatic. Um, although I do actually remember talking to a World War II veteran of the Battle of Bastogne who said that he and the 101st Airborne were often frustrated with their British um, uh, co compatriots who would always insist on having tea yeah. every day at tea time, no matter what was going on. Um, <laughs> that was sometimes frustrating, he said. Um, so I guess there is an element of truth to these uh, contrasts. But yeah, um, I, I definitely a lot of films that played into this. And I wonder if there's any films out there that do the opposite, like have the American characters be a bit more um, strict and proper and just the British characters just devil may care. If there is, I haven't seen it. Um, but... Yeah. I suppose. But I, th I think there are films that do it separately. Like there are plenty of films that have like happy-go-lucky British soldiers or um, very, very prudish American soldiers, but never together. I think Ice Cold in Alex is one of the the films that I think portrays English soldiers as a bit more um, laid back at certain times. Um, that's a great, that's a great movie. Um but it's, um, yeah, in general, I mean, the English are regimented and fussy and the Americans are opportunistic and maybe a bit more ruthless, but more flexible in general, you know, and able mm -hmm. to adapt. So that that does seem to be very much the representation throughout this period. Um, and yeah, I can't really argue with um, most of the Oscars it won. To be honest, like you, sometimes we we discussed Patton, and you think, God, Patton won seven Oscars. You think, really, this won seven Oscars? Mm -hmm. I think, well, probably fair enough. To be honest, because um, I think in in most departments it's extremely good, um, and yeah, I probably would have even given it Hayakawa as well. I was gonna say I would too. Um, I would be fine if this went eight for eight and yeah, winning for, and then, you know, kind of down the ticket winning for cinematography and editing. Yeah. What else was going to win this that year and scoring? I mean, you can't deny that this score is a classic. It says some interesting things about wartime as well. Like the, the prisoners of war still being led by their own, um, comrade, right? Um, yeah, it's not as it's not as if they um they're being bullied in this, which is sort of interesting notion that treating prisoners of war prisoners of war slaves will be less productive than using the authority within both sides to make the best of the situation that everyone's been forced into, kind of thing. So there's a yeah. bit of a it's there's a bit more give and take than you'd expect. I can't see that working now. I honestly don't know. Um, I don't know how the hierarchy in a POW camp uh, would work. But I kind of got the impression that 
I mean, it, it's a very big difference, I think, between the way we see POWs being treated in this film and other films that look at the war in Japan or with Japan and the way we see POWs being treated in films set in Europe, like The Great Escape, yeah. um, which also featured James Donald uh, in both part in both this and that. Whereas in this one, it's like, yes, the prisoners are uh, chattel to work, and that's how they're treated. And then in, in any one set in Europe, like The Great Escape, they are like, you are gentlemen. And we will treat you like gentlemen and you will be treated well. And I'm not sure what that says about the post-war filmmaking, but it definitely seemed like they, the portrayal of the Japanese was much more sadistic than that of the German um, commandants of the same period. Yeah, I mean, if you see, if you look at something like, I mean, this is different war, but something like The Deer Hunter... Um, mm, yeah. th- there are other films about Japan, Japanese soldiers, which yeah really don't shy away from it. This is quite a fair representation, I would say, or if not fair, kind. Um, yeah, restrained. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, if there is anyone that knows about prisoner of war camp rules, you can tweet us or send us an email. It'd be quite interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. There's some things to nitpick about Bridge on the River Kwai, but overall I think it's just a wonderful film. Um, Lean kind of at the height of his powers, um, even though, you know, he and Niven, uh, I'm sorry, Guinness, um, did not get along at all uh, during the production. Really? Um, No, there's a, um, I don't know if it's ever been absolutely confirmed, but there's a story that he... And Guinness clashed about the scene where um, Guinness's character kind of gives that little soliloquy about his life in the army um, and, you know, reflects on will he have a good legacy? And, you know, you know, it's all shot basically from behind or profile and Guinness quest, you know, dared to question it um, and Lean did not take kindly to it. And as soon as he was done, Lean apparently said, um, now all you English actors can fuck off and go home. Thank God I'm starting to work tomorrow with an American. It's referring to William Holden. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. And apparently, uh, Lean actually wanted Charles Lawton in the role initially, um, but Lawton wasn't the right kind of physic, didn't have the right physicality for it, so he had to go with uh, Alec Guinness. Well, it definitely didn't work out too badly. It's funny you were about to call him David Niven because the first time I watched this this movie years and years ago, I thought it was David Niven in the role. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. It's uncanny, isn't it? He, it's definitely Alec, Alec Guinness that is most David Niven-ish. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the fact that David Niven won Best Actor the next year doesn't help me keep it straight. <laughs> uh, okay, we've got some listener questions. A few. Um, we're going to start with Jibs, mm-hmm. um, which we've kind of already gotten into this question, but why do you think Henry Fonda and Marlene Dietrich both failed to get acting nominations? Yeah, we touched on Henry Fonda just maybe rubbing the conservatives the wrong way. Um, yes. 
But overall, 12 Angry Men didn't get a huge amount of attention. Like, I think it was, it's the least nominated of all these Best Picture nominees. I only got three uh, nominations, which is not much. Um, so, yeah, I guess it was just kind of ignored overall. And since it was an ensemble piece, maybe they just didn't feel like he was enough of a lead uh, to get a nomination. There must have been a lot of internal competition Um for supporting actor nominations, I think Lee J. Cobb got a Golden Globe nomination. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, there are so many that you could pick out from that that film that they it is going to cancel a lot of them out. Yeah. Um, but in terms of Fonda, yeah, I think, yeah, I think you could argue screen time wise, maybe, maybe he doesn't have the same presence as the other, the actual Best Actor nominees. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of Dietrich, I'm baffled, honestly, because it's not a strong Best Actress lineup. Fonda, Fonda was at least competing against Anthony Franchosa and Anthony Quinn, who were super popular in, in the, this decade. Um, yeah. But Dietrich, I have no idea, but I, I know that she recorded a new introduction to her. She had a Vegas show and she she like re-recorded it saying uh talking about her nomination for witness for the prosecution that never happened um mm. so she was definitely expecting this uh she yeah. got the golden globe nomination for best actress in a drama i don't know mm. what happened i honestly it's one of these puzzling ones really because she certainly deserved it yeah doesn't make any sense uh, next question is from uh, Fritz. Um, likes to change the Twitter handle, but currently boys don't Fritz. <laughs> asking, um, do you think William Holden came close to a nomination? Not really. I I don't think that you finish watching that movie and are thinking of him. Um, I don't, didn't find his character that interesting. Um Whereas Nicholson, the way that Guinness plays it is is a central focus and has the more interesting personality traits. Um, so I I don't think so. No, I don't. I I agree. Yeah. Um, of the two lead performances, uh, definitely Guinness has the upper hand there, and um, would eclipse any other potential rival in that category. Owen Daly asks, what actors overlooked from any of these nominated pictures do you think would have made a more exciting choice than the actors they recognised? I don't know. Maybe Tyrone Power in Witness for the Prosecution could have gotten Best Supporting Actor for me because, like I said, I I really like him in it um, and think that he probably got a bit of a snub there. But I don't think I'd replace any of the nominees from these with anybody else from the movies. Uh, I would have, I'm trying to think, I probably would have replaced Elsa Lanchester with Una O'Connor. I thought that that was, because Elsa Lanchester, apart from the beginning, she really isn't in it much, is she? I remembered her being, being in it more. Um, and I've seen her be like that before. Um, so I kind of, I I thought Una O'Connor was a bit of a scene stealer, but in terms of the rest of them nominate. The guys from Twelve Angry Men that I've, 
um, if we're going to include that. Um, but other than that, I certainly wouldn't nominate Arthur Kennedy for Peyton Place. Russ Tamblin, which we didn't mention, I thought he was actually quite good. Um, but Kennedy was shocking. I mean, I'd nominated literally anyone above him. Um, who do we have next? Sam Meltzer asks, um, why do you think that Sayonara has been mostly forgotten, although it was an epic um, an epic upon release, especially in comparison to films like Ben-Hur and Lawrence of Arabia? Because um, it's not as good? It's certainly not as dynamic a movie. As, as, I'm not a huge Ben-Hur fan, but at least... I mean, there are a lot of big moments in Ben-Hur. Um, whereas in Sayonara, it's a little bit slow. It's a little bit meh. So yeah. I think, and I also think its themes are not particularly valid now. Like in interracial marriage is the way that it's presented in the movie, which we talked about earlier. I don't think it's a story people would like to see now. Whereas there's a lot of permanence about the Bible and, and universal themes in, in Ben-Hur and Lawrence of Arabia seem to have more of that. Yeah. And I, yeah, just the, the theme of interracial marriage has been addressed better by so many other films that um, whatever Sayonara has to really say about it uh, has kind of been shuffled aside for just not being as pertinent or as poignant. Um, and also Lawrence of Arabia manages to do the foreign epic film without feeling like a travelogue so that's obviously another point in its favor yeah uh zeta short asks were the problems in peyton place really caused by gossip was the incestuous (laughs) rape caused by gossip she feels that that would have happened without the old ladies chattering about all of the pesky horny teenagers um well i guess we'll never know no um <laughs> well the skinny dipping or lack i mean f- supposed skinny dip that was gossip right yes yes um that was problems caused by gossip but certainly not all the problems of Peyton place um even though yeah it the point of the film is to be like the small town seemingly perfect hiding a dark secrets although the the seemingly perfect curtain comes down like 60 seconds into the film so it doesn't really not really much of a shock there um but no uh, obviously um the problems are compounded by gossip and i think that the consequences of the incestuous rape are made worse by the gossip simply because poor selena couldn't go to anyone for help because all they would have seen was a gossip opportunity um yeah or just or you know horribly that maybe she was to blame for it um and so yeah in that respect i think the problems of paid in place i think it's trying to say that um people who only see other people as you know sources of gossip or as you know just players in this drama that they are judging can lead to horrible consequences um but 
no, the alcoholic father raping his stepdaughter is not directly the result of gossip in that in a strict sense. I think it's I mean, most of the conflict comes from the parents' insecurities, right? It's right. the parents that are the problem. Um so yeah, it's not it's not all caused by gossip. No. As John Lennon said in Hard Day's Night, the older generation are leading this country to galloping ruin. It remains true. <laughs> All right. Um, Andrew, Andrew Carden asks, would Peyton Place have been worthy of a win in any of its nine nominations? Well, I'm going to say that I think Diane Varsi is the best of the supporting actress nominees. However, she's the lead for me. Um, so that would be category fraud. So te- technically, no, I don't think it did. I think... It's interesting because you would have thought there might be some traction for Elsa Lanchester winning this, given how established a character actress she was by that point. But obviously Sayonara was hugely popular, as shown by its nominations and win tally. Yeah. Um, I I would say probably not. Um, And I think if Diane Varsi was in the Best Actress race, she probably would not have won against Joanne Woodward. Um, no. so no, probably not. Um, I'm going to say no. And finally, Gabe asks, could you see any of the directors from this era directing these movies? Um, well, it's interesting because, uh, David Lean was not the first, well, maybe he was the first choice, but he wasn't the f- only one offered the chance to direct Bridge on the River Kwai. Um, a lot of big directors from the time were considered for it, uh, including William Wyler, uh, who had kind of a quiet year this year, um, Fred Zinneman, John Ford, even Orson Welles was kind of in the discussion. Um, so it's interesting to consider what those other directors would have done with it. Uh, I don't think any of them would have done as good a job as David Lean, and I say that as a huge William Wyler fan. I don't think he, I I think they made the right call there. Um, I can't see anyone other than Sidney Lumet doing 12 Angry Men. Um, That was, it's really his movie and he's got such a keen eye and a great cinematographer's eye, which is essential for this. I would have maybe liked to see what William Wyler would have done with uh, the Peyton Place material. Um, because maybe he wouldn't have made it so melodramatic. He tended not to go melodramatic. So with a keener eye for realism and pacing, I would be interested to see what he'd do with that. It's funny because a Peyton Place and Sayonara, Mark Robson and Joshua Logan, I, if, if you'd have told me one had directed the other, it, <laughs> I wouldn't have been surprised um, because they're both such bland filmmakers in general. Um, I would have liked to have seen David I think David Lean's version of Sayonara might have been brought out more from the material yeah yeah. Um, and Peyton Place needed somebody with a bit of humour like Robert Aldrich directing it I think mm-hmm. um, or Jean Negalesco somebody else um, yeah. that, that had that sensibility already all right, so now we come to the immortal question. Um, why did Bridge on the River Kwai win 
Best Picture this year, and was it a close race? Well, I don't think it was close, no. Um, although I will st- stick my neck out and say that I think Sayonara was second based on yeah. its performance elsewhere. Um, Four Winds is a a really good haul for a movie when another has already got seven. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it was close. I think this is this ticks all the boxes for the Oscars. It's an epic. It's a war movie. It's um, it's got great performances. It's shot on location. Looks great. It's it's the finished article. So no. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, I have to say, I agree that Sayonara must have been second, considering none of the other three won anything. Um, yeah. Which is pretty incredible that three out of the five Best Picture nominees went away empty-handed. Um, but yeah, this year it was Bridge on the River Kwai, Sayonara, and just a bunch of single wins uh, peppered throughout the rest of the categories. So pretty much dominant and really obvious in retrospect that Bridge on the River Kwai wins. Um, it does everything that a Best Picture should do. Yeah. Snubs? A um, couple pretty huge ones, I would say. Um, Paths of Glory. Absolutely. Was this year and got nothing. Um, ridiculous that that was not nominated for a bunch of Oscars, including Best Picture. Just ridiculous. And I would also say um, Sweet Smell of Success could easily have been a Best Picture nominee and maybe a double Best Actor nominee. Um completely snubbed in my opinion yeah those were the two i had um as well in Mm. terms of what needy got nominated i'm thinking maybe wild is the wind because it did get the globe best picture nomination it got some other nominations but overall i it really does feel as if these were the the five that they wanted wider observations we mentioned the yeah the matching of the picture and director Mm-hmm. Yeah, first of, like we said, only five times it's happened. Um, and I guess it makes sense. I mean, if you're going to nominate these five for Best Picture and Peyton Place and Sayonara in there over much more worthy films, yeah, why not throw Mark Robeson and Joshua Logan a bone? Um, I mean, they got other Oscar nominations in their career. Uh, Logan, I think, got one for Picnic and Robeson for End of the Sixth Happiness. Um, but still, I, I guess, you know, um, this didn't have to be the year that they matched up, honestly. (laughs) Um, but I guess it makes sense considering the overall attention that the films got. Um, the other three are obvious contenders that obviously should be in there. Um, but yeah. And then another quirk of the, um, of the year is that Peter Boulle, 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 I don't know, the French guy who wrote The Bridge on the River Kwai was won an Oscar this year. Um, and at the time, he was the only credited screenwriter for The Bridge on the River Kwai because we mentioned McCarthy uh, earlier. Michael Wilson and Carl Foreman were both blacklisted at this time. Yeah. And so despite not speaking English and not contributing to the screenplay at all, uh, Pierre won the Oscar and was the sole credited writer for a long time 
um, until the 80s when the Academy retrospectively fixed their mistake and added Michael Wilson and Carl Foreman to the um, to the category as Oscar winners. Okay, you ready to rank these? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Um, all right, so number five, I've got Sayonara. I think mainly because I thought it was quite dull. Um, I thought that, you know, even though Peyton Place is more laughable at times, I enjoyed watching it. Um, Number four, I've got Peyton Place for the reasons that I just outlined. Number three, I have Witness for the Prosecution. I think it was very, very engaging. However, it does have a couple of plot issues. Um, Mm -hmm. And number two, I have Bridge on the River Kwai. Um, it's a close one, but I feel as if 12 Angry Men is my number one just because I feel like it's better acted and there's maybe a little bit more going on um, script-wise in terms of dialogue. It's close. I would, I mean, we've talked about best director matching. I would give Lean the, the director win, no problem. But um, I think I would have been equally okay with 12 Angry Men winning Best Picture instead. Mm-hmm. Well, pretty close. Um, I have Peyton Place at number five. Um, again, if it had a sense of humor about itself, it might elevate it for me, but uh, for what it is, it just didn't click. Um, number four, I have Sayonara. Um, yeah, just want to reiterate that Brando didn't have to do that accent. Um, and just, again, he had just, pl- when he played someone actually supposed to be from the South in Streetcar, he just spoke like he normally did. But then when he was playing an Air Force uh, officer from an upper class family, he decided to do kind of a a weird Southern accent. I don't get it. But again, he was, he could do whatever he wanted in 1957. Um Number three, I have witness for the prosecution. Again, like agree with what you said. There's some, a few plot issues, but overall, I think it's a, um, a very tight and well directed and overall well acted uh, drama. I have Twelve Angry Men at number two. When I was first doing this, I initially had it at number one, but then I I couldn't help myself and I flipped it. Um, it is absolutely um, close for me because Twelve Angry Men. Yeah, is perfectly acted, perfectly shot, perfectly directed. I actually flipped them in my best director ranking. I actually have Lumet winning director over David Lean. Um, but for best picture, I have I have Bridge on the River Quiet number one. Because um, again, you can't deny the power of it and the scope of it. And even though it's very epic, it still feels like an intimate character study, which I think is quite an accomplishment. Yeah, I think so. We both would have been happy with a split this year. Um, But I think if a split was going to happen, it would have been for Sayonara. So it's probably best it didn't. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That would have been pretty tragic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, We have a website. It's categoricallyoscars.com. Uh, we're on Patreon now. It's patreon.com slash categoricallyoscars. Um, you can uh, listen to two extra episodes a month. 
and it's three euros a month or five dollars um so next on patreon next week we'll have our favorite years in cinema which for me is 1966 and for chris is 1969 so we'll be giving our top tens and then we'll also be talking about the actual oscar race in each year and how we felt about it um and our next regular episode will be on the first week of September, where we will be looking at Best Editing of 1983. The nominees were Blue Thunder, Flashdance, Silkwood, Terms of Endearment, and The Right Stuff. It's a very 80s lineup. It is, yeah. Looking forward to uh, Blue Thunder. <laughs> mm-hmm. Saw that years ago uh, when I was trying to get through Roy Scheider's entire filmography. It's... Uh, it's interesting. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back with a new episode next week. See you then. Mm-hmm.